Jeff, do you think Gary Anderson quit or was he fired? And also, should the Big Sky try to trade or the Mountain West try to trade Utah State straight up with the Big Sky for Weber? Um, I have very little respect for Gary Anderson. Very, very little respect. Let's just let's repaint the picture of Gary Anderson over the course of the last several years. Gary Anderson was at Utah State and tattooed a logo of Utah State on his back to say, hey, I'm not leaving. And I don't care, you know, if a coach says I'm not leaving and then they leave, like that's coaching. But like the dude took it to the extreme and said, hey, I'm tattooing this on my back. I'm not leaving. And then within like weeks, he was gone. It wasn't even weeks. It was like hours. He told people, (laughs) he did a booster event when they, because I think, you know, they being Utah State in 2012, they had that great season, finished ranked, won the WAC in its final year ever, and ended up in the Idaho Potato Bowl. And he did a booster event and was like, no, I'm committed to Utah State. Look, I just got this tattoo. I love the Aggies. My family loves it. And Logan, it was literally like two days later, he was gone. Gone. So then he goes to Wisconsin and he quits in the middle of the night. And I'm not going to get into the folklore. I mean, I am. I'm going to get into the folklore, but I want to preface that this is folklore. We don't know if this is verified truth or not, but I've heard it from a lot of reputable uh, sources. So I think it probably is. But while he's at Wisconsin, Bronco Mendenhall is entertaining the idea of going to Oregon State. And this is in the middle of the 2014 season for timelines. Correct. Correct. He's entertaining the idea of going to Oregon State, his alma mater. And it's it's very Bronco-esque, right? Like Oregon State's a program that's not on the uh, you know the, the, the upper echelon of the national landscape. It's uh, his alma mater. It's a program that needs to be rebuilt. That's what Bronco is. That's what he loves. And f- the folklore is that Oregon State needed some sort of references from Bronco, whether it was just them checking up, whether it was, hey, Bronco, we need a reference from you, like a, a traditional job. I don't know. But Oregon State reached out to Gary Anderson on behalf of Bronco. And they started talking to him about, hey, we're thinking about bringing your guy Bronco over. What do you think? And Gary Anderson said, well, I think Bronco's great, but I'm interested. And if you're working, this is like in October too. This is, this is before the end of the season. And it was, you know, BYU had just knocked off Texas. They were ranked like in the top 20 after beating Texas and Virginia and Houston started off really solid. Taysman, Taysman was in the Heisman talk. People thought that, you know, Taysom was going to leave after that season. And there was that one random quarterback who transferred from Missouri. I don't remember his name. That was going to be like Taysom 2.0. Yes. Trent Hosick. Yes. And then, <laughs> uh, and so this was like, bright and high and Broncos like, Hey, this is a good time to leave. Like, I feel like the program's a good place. And obviously we know the October meltdown that happened after Taysom got hurt, but so this is still Bronco is still involved in the BYU program. And Gary Anderson is still in the middle of coaching a Wisconsin team and Wisconsin is unequivocally a million times better of a job than Oregon state ever has been or will be. Yep. Not even close. And they were having success. So anyway, Gary Anderson gets that call, says, hey, I'm interested. If you're Oregon State and you have an opportunity to poach the, I mean, really one of the premier coaches of a couple of years ago when he was coming out of Utah State, and you have an opportunity to take a coach who is leading Wisconsin to, I believe they won 10 or 11 games that year. If you could take that coach, of course you're going to do it. So then they pull him over. 
So now Gary Anderson leaves Wisconsin, you know, in the cover of darkness overnight. He goes to Oregon State, and we won't get into the details, but there has been plenty of buzz about the the shady dealings of what led to Gary Anderson's downfall at Oregon State. Because I don't have any of it as verified proof, I, I don't feel comfortable going into the rumors that we've heard, but they're they're bad, right? And I think if you spend 10 minutes on the internet and you Google Gary Anderson and Oregon State, you could probably find out what those rumors were for yourself. He quits mid-season and trashes his assistant coaches on the way out in text messages that then get leaked out to the media. Just absolutely rips apart his coaching staff. Actually, if you start to Google Gary Anderson, Oregon State, Google search will suggest what we were talking about. Oh, there about. you go. You don't there even have go. to so, look far. Invest your time in doing that if you're confused what we're saying. So he leaves Oregon State, trashes his assistants, and goes into, well, I don't want to be a head coach anymore. And Kyle Whittingham, this is at the time that the NCAA now allows a 10th assistant to be on your coaching staff. Kyle Whittingham obviously knows Gary Anderson. Gary Anderson has a ton of connections in Utah, a ton of connections out West. He was just the coach of Wisconsin not very long ago. That's a home run hire if you can bring him on as your 10th assistant. But Whittingham has the same kind of concerns that I think anybody would have about bringing Gary Anderson on board. Gary Anderson tells Kyle Whittingham, I have no interest in being a head coach. All I want to do is be an assistant coach. I want to get my mind right. I want to get back on my feet. And I am comfortable staying the rest of my career as an assistant coach. Is that coach speak? Maybe, right? Like you're trying to get a job. So Witt hires him comes to Utah, not even one year later, he finds his way back into Logan as a head coach. And the way that he got there was sketchy. Not that, I don't know if he did anything sketchy, but it is well documented on fan boards uh, with, with, re, with you know, various sources and insiders at Utah State that the athletic department wasn't real high on Gary Anderson because of the bridges that were burned when he left previously. But the owners of Cash Valley Electric, the Lobs, Lobes, Lobs, I don't know how to say their last name. They are the biggest booster. They're the Ryan Smith of Utah State, big time Aggie boosters. They wanted Gary Anderson in. They kind of finagled their way in and, and really called the shot. So Gary Anderson takes over at Utah State. And here we are now. Gary Anderson is gone midseason. So bringing this all back to your question, Gary, your question to me was, did Gary Anderson quit or was Gary Anderson fired? And I know that we're just slandering Gary Anderson. Uh, Jackson Light, his mom, uh, one of my tweets where I was slandering Gary Anderson, she actually replied, it was like, Jeff, you need to be nice. The college football world is small. And she's right. I probably do need to be nice, but I just have so little respect. I don't think he was, I don't think he quit, but I don't think that he was fired because of his on-field performance. Yes, I know what I'm suggesting, and I don't have any proof whatsoever, but if I had to guess, the reason that he was let go was not because of what happened on the field when, when the Aggies started 0-3. That's, I feel like a safe guess because, I mean, look at his history. That, that's, that's what's happened everywhere he's been. Right. Well, I mean, so he still 
like, okay, he took Utah State from nothing, which they had always been nothing, to 11-2 and two and finishing ranked. And then he actually did well at Wisconsin, went 9-4, and four, finished they finished ranked both years that he was at Wisconsin. And then last year he comes back, Utah State. I mean, they lost a ton of people, but they still had Jordan Love. And they lost a ton of people, still went 7-6, and six, went 6-2 six and two in conference play, only losing to Boise and Air Force, and made it to a bowl game. Like, they... You know, and they should have probably should have won that bowl game and finished eight and five. That's not a bad year, especially for a school like Utah State. So it's a great year for Utah State. So Ten years ago, eight, Utah State fans are over the moon with their eight with an eight and four season. Right. And so I think, I mean, if yes, they're one in oh and three, and Jason Shelley has yet to pass for more than a hundred, they have yet to have a quarterback throw for more than a hundred yards in a game right? Like it's their offense is horrible, but they, I mean, you're still looking at a team that, you know, under they have finished Utah state has finished ranked in the AP poll three times. Once in 1961, when they went nine, one and one, they finished number 10 amazingly. Um, and then in 2012 under Gary Anderson and then 2018 under Matt Wells. So they, I think the performance is not the issue. And especially if performance is the issue, then it's like, you know, and the lob family was like way involved, a way into Gary Anderson being there. They would have given him more time if it was just performance and they could have blamed the pandemic, whatever. But I mean, we heard things about him saying like any player who opts out of this season is no longer welcome in our program. There have been, you know, things with like, Amid a pandemic, when they had to buy out his contract, money is very limited because they don't have fans in the stands. Like, there is zero on field reason in year two after three games, no matter how bad it is in 2020, to fire Gary Anderson at this point in time. So, that leads me to believe it has to be something else. Either that, or maybe he something happened and he really pissed off the three boosters that wanted him and put up all the money to hire him. It just feels like, I mean, you're, you're right. A pandemic hits, it hits everybody, but it especially hits those smaller schools, those Mountain West schools. Boise State's not immune, right? Like they're shutting down baseball programs. Like certainly Utah State has been hey, impacted Their baseball by this. program, this was their first season ever. And they only- <laughs> And they had to pull the plug made, already. made it like seven games. Yeah. So certainly a program like Utah State is also being impacted. And- yeah, Gary Anderson's buyout was nearly three years' salary. Like that's a big, big number to swallow in the current landscape of college football. It makes me think there there had to be cause, and cause is an on-field performance. But I'm not an attorney. I'm not a Utah State insider. Those are my thoughts. That's you ask the question. I think that's the answer. Uh, I have very little respect for Gary Anderson. If I ever have the opportunity to enter the college football ranks and become an employee and a, a career guy within college football, I couldn't do it with Gary Anderson. I know that he is a good man. I think he's a good man. I just don't think I could trust him. I don't think that I could attach my career to him. And, you know, Kalani talks about Gary a lot, and that he's one of the mentors. But if I'm Kalani, I'm a little pissed, right? Like not because of Utah State thing, but Kalani's the 10-year guy at Utah. He's the defensive coordinator, and he's considered by most at the time 
to be the heir apparent for Whip or a shoo-in for the BYU job. In an effort to build his profile a little bit, Gary Anderson convinces him to take the defensive coordinator job at Oregon State, like a, a place that is going to be really hard to win, that has a lack of talent on the roster. He convinces Kalani to go, and then he leaves a year and a half later. I mean, I, I know Kalani was gone by the time that Gary left, but if Kalani, if, if the BYU job would have went to Kenya Montalolo and Kalani would have been the defensive coordinator at Oregon State for his second year, Gary leaves him hanging high and dry, just like he did to all of his other friends who were there. Like, that's tough for me to swallow. So, I don't know. If I'm Gary, or if I'm Kalani, I don't really trust Gary Anderson. If I'm Jeff Hansen, which I am, I definitely don't trust Gary Anderson. And I continue to take to the internet and the podcast waves to make my feelings known. Yes, I. some people have brought up of should we try to get Gary Anderson on staff as an assistant? No, 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 hell no. I do not want him within 500 miles of any team room related to BYU football. This is not like when Aaron Roderick got let go at Utah and he was an unpaid offensive analyst, you know, in the 2017 season working at BYU, just helping out because he's a good dude and kind of needed to get back on his feet. This is not that like Gary Anderson is a mess. He has a lot of things in his personal life to figure out, which I think is very evident because it's not just fool me once at Wisconsin, fool me twice at Oregon. Now it's fool me three times at Utah state. This is very weird. There's just too many weird things. You don't want that around. Um, And we've heard some rumblings about things going on inside the Utah state locker room where just not getting along with players. Like really, I don't think anyone in the building there really liked him and it was a horrible decision. You never really want to retreading a coach never works out. Don't just don't do it. So they, um, I mean, I think we've, we got around to where we eventually wanted to get to on this point of BYU should BYU talk to Gary Anderson about a potential job. Should people move on from this staff next year? And the answer is no, go find somebody else, find an up and comer. Don't take a has been who has left in scorched earth fashion from his last four jobs. Dude, even if you're going to take a has been, just don't take that has been like yeah. that's the has been to avoid. Now what it does, I mean, there is a BYU element to this beyond just potentially talking to Gary Anderson about bringing him on board. Could Utah State be reaching out to some of BYU's current assistants? 100%. The answer to that question is yes. Uh, Jeff Grimes. Jeff Grimes, if you ever listen to Jeff Grimes talk, you look at how he conducts himself on the sidelines. The guy looks like a head coach. Like I know he's an offensive coordinator, and he's a first-time offensive coordinator at, at BYU, not at a P5 level. But the guy screams head coach to me. He's ultra serious, he's ultra organized, and he's proven to be productive at every stop that he's been at, including BYU as an offensive coordinator. I think that Jeff Grimes, one of his best attributes that we don't really talk about is his, uh, is his network of connections to be able to fill out a staff. Now, obviously, he's tapped into the Kalani network as well with the staff at BYU, guys like Fessy and guys like A-Rod. But uh, he's proven with like Ryan Pugh and with Eric Mateos that, that he also has a network and he has a lot, a lot, a lot of experience in the SEC. He has helped his other assistant coaches. He has helped get AJ Stewart's name out. He has helped get Ryan Pugh's name out uh, as they've taken promotions. Like the guy knows everybody 
and everybody has a ton of respect for him. In my mind, if I'm Utah State, everybody and their dog is talking about Jay Hill. Uh, Jeff Grimes is on my short list, probably ahead of Jay Hill. Like Jay Hill is an excellent head coach and would be on the short list for BYU if Kalani were to ever move on. Uh, but there is there's a very big difference from FCS football to FBS football in terms of talent, in terms of expectation, in terms of recruiting. Like at the FCS level, you know, Weber State just has to go and find under the radar guys. Like most of their recruiting is spent in talent evaluation. It isn't anything to do with selling your program, selling the vision, playing politics, because you're competing for guys who have offers from your peers. Like Weber State's going and getting one off for guys that you think might work. Like even that is different. So I don't think that Jay Hill is this slam dunk that everybody thinks he is. Could he be great? Absolutely. He's a heck of a coach. But I, I don't think that just because he's a heck of a coach at Weber means he will be a heck of a coach in Logan. Uh, I look at like Craig Bowl at Wyoming. Awesome, awesome, awesome coach at North Dakota State. Wyoming's a tough place to win. So is Logan. And while he's done well in Wyoming, I mean, he's not putting Laramie in contention for a Mountain West Conference championship. He had Josh Allen. And after Josh Allen left, Wyoming kind of went back to Wyoming. You know what I mean? And so... I don't know that Jay Hill would be at the top of my list. Jeff Grimes is a guy who would be. Ed Lamb is a name that we've heard forever as a prime head coach candidate. I don't see it. I think he'll probably go and be a coordinator at the FBS level before he gets a head coach job, but certainly he could be looked at. And depending on, on who takes that job, even if it's their current interim coach, Frank Miley or Jay Hill, the trickle-down effect that it could have on guys like Fessy Satake and Steve Clark is absolutely possible. Preston Hadley, if Jay Hill were to get that job, Preston Hadley probably goes and is some sort of uh, gets some sort of a promotion on the defensive staff under Jay Hill. Betsy Satake could very easily go and be Jay Hill's offensive coordinator. Uh, if Aaron Roderick, Roderick goes and becomes the offensive coordinator, Steve Clark would go and be his passing game coordinator. Or, or there's a, a, a multitude of scenarios that could play out that would impact BYU. So. That is a very important position to watch over the next several weeks. It could end up being, if I'm Utah State, I probably want to get out of that bubble a little bit, get out of the Gary Anderson tree, and maybe I want to reach out and go look at somebody like, maybe you can get Zach Hill, who was the uh, offensive coordinator at Boise State for a number of years, and now he's the offensive coordinator at Arizona State. Um, this is his first year at ASU, but he's a guy who could potentially be a head coach. Maybe they go that route. And then that, you know, everything that we just said is kind of null and void because there's not a whole lot of connections between Zach Hill and BYU's coaching staff. But if some of these guys under that Utah adjacent umbrella take this job, uh, BYU fans need to be very, very keenly aware of what's going on because it could impact their team. Yeah. And I mean, even Utah State has hired a, um, has hired a FBS coach. For, I mean, they hired uh, Dave Arslanian or Arslanian, if you want to get real particular on the Armenian pronunciation from Weber. And it was a major flop. And it was, but that was also very, and yes, he, you know, Arslanian had good experience at Weber, but he was similar to Jay Hill, where it was like he had coached in Utah his entire career, right? Like there was no real outside experience. And, you know, going off of different trees and bringing in new things. And so it just like, it was different in the, um, 
you know, just the needs were different of the program. It's not a straight translation. It can obviously work. As you mentioned, Craig Bull is doing well for what Wyoming is. Chris Klein is doing really well at Kansas State, you know, so it can happen and it works well. But there, you know, there are, it's not exactly a, oh, you're going to jump up and everything is going to be perfect, right? Because it's, there's different read things with boosters. Recruiting is very different because now you're competing for people instead of competing really among the leftovers where, you know, it's, you can quickly rise to the top with a couple of good seasons as being by far the best option and location and things don't really matter as much. Um, at the FCS level, most kids just want to play for a good program as a shot at the playoffs that kind of becomes number one priority. And mm-hmm. so there's, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, are very different. And even too, like they hired, uh, who was the other coach early in the 2000s at Utah State? Mick Dennehy. Uh, oh, yeah. Mick Dennehy. They hired him from Montana. Montana had been to the, like, he had taken Montana and the Big Sky to the FCS playoffs four years in a row when they were there, and including a loss where they went 14 and one and lost in the FCS championship game. And he went, had a pair of four and seven seasons, a five and six year, and a couple three and eight years at Utah State. So it's not, a straight translation of things and you know that's just going to jump up so it's utah state is an incredibly difficult program um to work at it's a different to recruit players to their resources are very limited it's hard to sell people on logan when the best option you have to take kids out to eat on a recruiting trip is texas roadhouse I and, love that. This is the second or third time you brought this up to me in the last couple. I love it. I love that you're that that you found that out and that you know, we're looking at that. And well, I get we it. T- it's we not a talking. slander, but it's funny. I think right. it's hilarious. We were, we were talking to somebody else about this, and they made yeah. a joke about it. And then after talking to some other like parents of players and things that had been recruited by both BYU and Utah State, whatever, that we learned that that is not a the joke we made fun of. of Texas Roadhouse being the nicest restaurant in Logan turns out that that's reality and that's where they take kids on official visits. So I think I, it's funny. So if I, I was if I was Utah State, a guy that I'm looking really really hard at is Jeff Choked. He's the head head coach at uh, Montana State. He's a former Utah State guy. He was there in 2002 under Mick Dennehy, and he's done some good things at uh, at Montana State. His recruiting connections are going to be a little bit bigger than what Jay Hills are because Jay Hill has been at Utah and then at Weber, like Jay Hill knows uh, pockets of Southern California and Utah. And that's what he knows. And I just don't think there's enough talent. I, I, I think there's a ton of talent in Utah. I don't think there's enough talent in Utah that Utah state could take the scraps that, you know, other bigger schools don't want and end up with a team that's going to compete with Boise state or even a team that's going to compete with like San Diego state or Fresno. So Jeff Choate is a guy that I would look at. But to your point, Garrett, I think it's interesting. When we look at Craig Bowl, this is maybe the best illustration that says, hey, uh, FCS success does not guarantee FBS success. He was the head coach at North Dakota State for 10 years, and he did great things. He had five 10-win seasons, 10 or more win seasons, and he won back-to-back-to-back FCS championships and, in his and, last three years. And he navigated them in the trans from through their transition from division two to FCS as correct. well as part yeah. of that yep. run. Absolutely correct. And he turned them into a powerhouse. And the best job that was offered to him 
was Wyoming. Because there's a difference. Because FCS football is different from FBS football. So I don't think that Jay Hill is the, the home run higher that everybody thinks he is. I think Utah State could look at coordinators. I think Utah State could look at BYU's coordinators and, and really give them a long, hard look. Uh, that's the BYU angle. Look, it's a bye week, folks. Like, there's not a game to talk about. So, yeah, we're delving into Utah State's coaching situation a little bit. There isn't a game to talk about because half the games in this country have been canceled this weekend. So everybody, we just had literally half the SEC is gone. The Ohio State-Maryland game is gone. There's, you know, there's all – actually, let me pull up the – see if I can grab an official list here, pull up the scrap, but it's, so, I mean, I know we've talked about, and this is something kind of more of a strategic decision of what does BYU need to do in scheduling. And I want to preemptively say right now that if BYU rankings come out next week, if BYU is sitting at like fifth or sixth in the CFP rankings, they may be a little bit lower than that, um, depending on how the playoff committee views things. They, there is no possible team in the country that BYU could schedule to catapult them to being three or four. It is not possible because the only teams that would do that would be stomping, absolutely stomping another, a top 10 P5 team. And that like, if you get into the 15 to 20 range, it doesn't do anything for you. Like you have to have your Notre Dame beat Clemson statement game to leapfrog somebody. Otherwise you just have to have, keep winning until people in front of you start to lose. And so they can position themselves to try to get up to five and then hope some crazy things happen in the conference championship games and slide in there. Similar to how Alabama did um, that year when Georgia beat Auburn in the playoff and then Penn state beat Ohio state the year before that and Ohio state or Penn state beat Wisconsin for that. And so we had back-to-back years where Alabama and Ohio state kind of slid in from fifth to fourth without having to play in a conference championship game. You have to hope for something like that. I think there is an argument to be made for scheduling a team like, you know, another winnable game just because, it's a long time. It's five weeks between Boise and San Diego State. I know we've got an FCS game next week, but then that's still there's two bye weeks in between then. That's I mean, Kalani said that if they need to, they'll do a full scrimmage and maybe they do that. But I think you'd like to get another game just to kind of stay more fresh in voters' mind and also stay sharp and be ready because in that San Diego State game, it's your last shot of the year. Like that's going to be, we're trying to hang 70 points on them, not only to get payback for last season, but that's, you have to have to have to make your statement because that is your last chance to prove whatever, you know, whatever that you belong. So in turn, you know, people are saying like, Oh, we should schedule Marshall and Liberty. Those would be ranked wins that the winning those games do nothing for you. There's zero respect from the committee or on a national level for Marshall or Liberty. The only reason they are ranked is because they're undefeated and seven games into the year if you are doing it, but it's, I've seen people try to say that Liberty has a better resume because they have two P5 wins. Look, Boise State and Houston are better than Virginia Tech and uh, Syracuse. Syracuse is not a good football team. And they're they, bad. And, Virgi- and Liberty lost that game. If you did not see the end of that game, go find the clips of it on YouTube because it was fantastic how that game ended with a blocked kick six. Virginia Tech running it back, but they iced themselves. So it got taken, iced the kicker. So it got taken off the board. Then they let Liberty get five more yards and then Liberty kicked a field goal with no time left. Fantastic ending to a game. 
but Liberty is squeaking by games. They're not dominating anyone. And same thing with Marshall. Um, and, and so and what, and what you got to look at, and I think it's it's easy for BYU fans to be a little bit myopic in the way that uh, things are viewed, right? That we we are BYU fans, so we're going to focus on BYU. But I look at the teams who would be competing for that number four spot. It's it's Florida, it's Texas A and M, right? I mean, it's uh, potentially Oregon. Texas A and M was supposed to play Tennessee this week. Uh, they Tennessee's not a great football team. They're two and four, and so. Texas A&M probably goes out on the road, beats Tennessee by two touchdowns, let's say. Let's say they beat them by a score of 35 to 21, something like that. That win is going to earn them way more respect. It's just the way that it is. Way more respect in the eyes of voters than BYU playing Marshall and winning by 40. Like it just is. Uh, You're going to get to a point for that fourth spot. It's going to come up and it's going to be the same argument that that happens every year what do you vote for when you are the college football playoff committee are you trying to determine who you think is the best team or are you trying to vote for the team who earned that spot if you look at the film and you're looking at the eyeball test yeah another game against liberty maybe that helps showcase that hey BYU is a really darn good football team but I think that the way most voters vote is what that team has earned. And I think that BYU is getting real close to the ceiling of what they can earn. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't be ranked higher, but I don't know that they can earn a higher ranking at this point. It has to be other teams losing and BYU continuing to float to the surface. Like That sucks. Nobody likes to hear that, but that's kind of the way that it is. I actually talked on our uh, VIP chat this week, kind of my introduction uh, to the chat on Cougar Sports Insider, I talked about fintechs. For those of you who don't know what a fintech is, is it's it's like a challenger bank. They're not real banks, but they're these apps that are doing financial type things. And they, they really started to come to the surface with things like, I don't know, like Mint, some of these data aggregation type apps uh, that, you know, that came onto the surface several years ago, Divi, is another one that does like corporate cards and, and things like that. There's there's the hundreds, literally hundreds of them out there. And what they do is they do things that banks have done for a million years, but they're, they're able to do it. And because they're not a bank, they're able to do it in a way that, that doesn't come with the same kind of like regulatory oversight. And they're also brand new companies. And so they're able to uh, avoid like what the bank would have to go through of converting old systems and all of this other stuff. They're able to just build from scratch with a blank sheet of paper, and they make things that are really super cool. And we're to a point in society that things like FDIC coverage that banks have offered for a million years just doesn't matter in the same way that it used to. So these fintechs- Other than the fact that the FDIC only has like 0.7% of all reserves (laughs) on hand. So if more than one major bank fails, the FCIDC is zero on their bank account. It's It's worthless. And more people are figuring that out now, right? And more people are trusting these after bank, you know, aftermarket type banking services. So that is challenging the very existence of banks. And for the better part of the last decade, banks have been afraid of fintechs because it's like, what is this fintech company doing to our very existence? What are they doing to our revenue? What are they doing to our customers? They're, they're changing things. Well, over the course of probably the last I would say really two years, maybe even less than that, banks have kind of pivoted 
and they've been like, okay, well, hey, if we just all bite the bullet and we change and we become the tech type companies that these fintechs are, and we become the fintech, we have the same customer experience, then there's no more reason to go to these fintechs. We can offer all of that stuff. So banks are buying fintech companies. They are building their own infrastructure that really kind of minimizes the, the use of these fintech companies. And I think that over the course of the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, these fintech companies are gonna just gradually kind of disappear. And it would be easy to look at it and say, well, the fintechs failed because the banks are still in existence. They're still dominating the industry. But I look at it like, no, that the fintechs succeeded because they vastly changed the industry. Like, I'm not a businessman. I don't own one of those fintechs. So I don't have to care if they got bought or they went out of business. Doesn't make a difference to me. So from an industry level, they changed the industry. And that isn't that is a win, right? Well, BYU is that disruptor. They are that fintech. And they have been for 40 years, since forever. The, since the Bull Alliance of the early 90s, which led to yeah. Lavelle Edwards testifying in front of Congress, to 2001 getting told heading into the Hawaii game that uh, it doesn't matter what happens at this game, even though you're ranked like number six in the country, you're not getting into the BCS. So it doesn't. this game does not matter. And You're absolutely like, right. It has BYU, been the same thing over and over and over again. And BYU sneaks in and they they get a backdoor national championship in 1984 that we could argue all day long. Like BYU fans will say forever that we deserved it. Uh, Everybody else will say light schedule. No, you didn't. There's validity to both arguments. Like take off your fan hat and look at it subjectively. And yes, there is validity to both arguments, right? But BYU gets that national championship. And yeah, the Bowl Alliance is formed shortly thereafter. And it's really the haves or the banks of college football that are committing to never allowing something like that to happen again. And when BYU gets to the Cotton Bowl and they're looking at a 14 and one or 13 and one season, like they have to pivot again because, uh oh, BYU, that dirty little BYU school, they're getting close to our territory. We better change. And so then BCS comes around. Then 2001 rolls around and BYU starts to threaten to get, ah, we better change it a little bit. And then other teams, Utah, Boise State, they sneak their way in there. TCU sneaks their way in there. That's who BYU is, folks. Like that is who BYU is, is they are the team that disrupts the way that college football does things. And maybe, maybe one day they just finally get invited to sit at the table with the, the halves of college football. But if they don't, BYU is still successful even if they get left out of the playoff because they are challenging the very existence of how the whole system works. And in my mind, that's a huge win. So if I'm BYU and I'm looking at the schedule, the only argument, and you mentioned it, Garrett, the only argument that I listen to about potentially adding a 10th game is stay or an 11th game is I want to stay sharp for San Diego State. So maybe I add a game against a Sunbelt team because I want to stay sharp. I want to have Zach Wilson be on, like, make another highlight reel. And I, I just want to be ready to play against San Diego State. If that's the reasoning for adding a game, I could get on board with that. If the idea is that BYU is going to add another game and then elevate their resume to the point that the college football playoff committee has to include them at number four, I don't care if BYU schedules Alabama and beats Alabama on the road in Tuscaloosa come selection Sunday, you know, whatever it's called with college football day, come the time that the committee names their four teams, it will be, well, yeah, BYU beat Alabama, but that was their only team. That was their only P5 win. 
and Alabama had nine other P5 wins. Like that's what would happen. That's just the way that the system is built. That's the, that, those are the, the, that's the hand that has been dealt to BYU. Those are the things that they have to go up against. And it sucks. And we can complain about whether it's fair or whatever, like, but none of it matters because for 40 years, that's what BYU has been dealing with. So there is no game, not Liberty, not Marshall, not Alabama, not Ohio State, maybe not even a combination of Alabama and Ohio State. There is no combination of games that BYU could win that are going to universally make everybody say, yep, BYU is obviously one of the top four teams in the country. This will they will fight and fight and fight to keep BYU. I, I feel a little bit like Donald Trump with the, the conspiracy theories here, but they will. They will fight and fight and fight to keep BYU out of the college football playoff. You know, the only thing that could possibly happen that gets BYU into the playoff is especially given like the schedule this year. And I, I mean, we've talked about it. I think you and I both agree that the way that they beat teams has proven that they belong in the top 10 being eight. No, cause they're not just scraping by games week after week um, is if for some reason, Zach Wilson decides to come back next year, they will be returning 11 out of 11 starters on offense, depending on if, unless you have like Brady Christensen or Chan Brady Christensen decides to declare for the draft, which very well may happen. But I think if Zach Wilson came back, he'd probably come back too. Um, that, you know, you're talking about 100% because the only, I looked at this this week, the only senior who has any type of offensive production this year is Kavika Fanua having nine carries for 33 yards as the fifth string running back in garbage time. Everybody else is a freshman, sophomore, or junior that was brought in by Kalani's staff and they've put in the time, they struggled as underclassmen, and now a lot of them are juniors. And it's next year, you know, they could be staring up and down that skill and say, look, guys, we go to the New Year Six this year. Doesn't matter if it's against Cincinnati, right? Like TCU and Boise State played in the Fiesta Bowl in 2009, and it, they were annoyed that it got, you know, that they got paired up against each other, whatever. It sucked for them. They thought it, you know, they wanted the chance to prove themselves against the, bigger conferences, but whatever, they still played each other. They won. TCU brought a ton of people back the next year. Next year, they finished number two and ended up being a G5 team in the Rose Bowl the following season, right? Like that's what, so if I think maybe they can look down that schedule and say, look, guys, we're bringing everybody back. Like we could do this next year. Like we're looking at this schedule say, like if we run the table against that, which next year's schedule has seven P5 teams, plus Boise, and then USF, Utah State, uh, the Georgia Southern, and an FCS team, Idaho State. So it's if you're looking at that schedule, they say, hey, we run the table. We're good. They would start off preseason top 15, maybe even top 10, depending on what happens just because there's that much hype around Zach Wilson, what he can do at quarterback, and you're going to return maybe eight or nine starters on defense as well. That next year could be really, really special. And so it, you know, that is what it would take is – back-to-back years of going undefeated like that that and you have to bring back the entire coaching staff yes which is also like this coaching staff we just talked about it if you think the utah state is the only job that's going to potentially look at byu's assistance then you're you're naive like so there's a lot of things that would have like, to fall into place we've had a and, lot of people speaking of what you're saying and we've talked about this the last couple of weeks with kalani's target when people are like who would offer him he's only had one good year it's like, have y'all ever looked at Matt Wells's 
results at Utah State. He had a one good season and then went and cashed out and is getting paid like two and a half million dollars a year, three million dollars a year to be in the Big 12 and lose games by kicking field goals on second and four. <laughs> I loved his explanation of that too. Like he was trying, like I actually thought the explanation was sound. Like he's trying to say, hey, it's a two possession game. You got to score one twice anyway. So let's save some time. But he's trying to do it after justifying uh, kicking on second and four, a 40 yard field goal that was missed. Like it, anyway, it was just funny. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. One year coaches get hired all the time. And everybody keeps saying this, and we'll see if it ends up being true. Everybody continues to say that the pandemic is going to prevent coaches from being fired. It's going to prevent coaches for, or schools from paying buyouts. And it's essentially going to save coaches' jobs for one more year. And I didn't buy into it then, and I definitely don't buy into it now. And let me tell you why. Utah State just fired their coach a year and a half into his job was their cause, whatever. I don't know, but they just fired their coach. If Utah state is looking at their P and L and they're saying, Hey, uh, we can afford to, to make this move. Then I promise you that other schools are going to be able to do the same thing. As soon as this pandemic is over, don't don't get this idea that it's going to drastically change the way that that teams spend their money because it's not. Teams are going to continue as soon as the pandemic is over. They're going to go right back to where they were and spending all of this money. It's not going to create this huge shift of now suddenly all these programs are going to be fiscally sound. That's not what's going to happen. As soon as they feel like they are in a spot that they can start to spend again, they will spend again the same way. That's just what's going to happen. So I have zero doubt in my mind that there will be head coach openings um, at the P5 level throughout the West that uh, that potentially could be very, very appealing to a guy like Kalani Satake. I think that those job offers will come. I don't know if he's going to take them, but I think that those job offers will come. Um, I've mean, been wrong. I've been wrong before, but I, I think I'm right. I think too, it's a, people think of athletic department funding as a whole and coaching staff salaries are very disjointed from that, right? You realize like if, somebody comes to you and says, Hey, we want a new coach. We're going to give you X million of dollars, X millions of dollars for this coach and to cover the buyout. That doesn't, you know, the fact that you're losing money on your tennis team or your baseball program, that doesn't mean anything to that because if you say, well, no, we're going to keep this coach because we can't afford the buyout where they said, well, we're going to pay the buyout. And I'm only giving you this money. If it goes towards hiring a new football coach, like then that, the, what the rest of your financial situation of your athletic department is very different because those boosters earmark that money and it goes to what they want. And so if that's, if they say you get this, if you hire a new coach or you get zero, then you have the freedom to hire a new coach. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the programs are at and what the overall state of the financial, you know, state of the athletic department is because you either have some money or zero money. So that's pretty cut and dry and it's not all tied together the way some people think it wants to be. And I think there will be just as much movement this season as there is in any other year. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that BYU is going to be uh, at the heart and center. Like that's the price of being good. Uh, Alabama is good every year and they lose coordinators just about every single year. Now BYU is not Alabama, but their coaches are going to get poached in the same way that Alabama's do. Like it's just something to plan on and get ready for because it's happening. 
Uh, we do have, it's kind of breaking news, even though it's been expected for a long time and it hasn't officially been announced by BYU, uh, but it is the early signing period today for basketball. And Jake Wallen just announced that he has officially signed. He tweeted out a picture of him signing his national letter of intent, sending it into BYU. The school should theoretically announce it here shortly. Uh, unless, of course, you buy into the J. Drew belief that without the student or the sports information department, BYU will not be able to deliver this news to the people because somehow that's the only way news gets delivered. I mean, Jay tweeted the information out for free and BYU didn't have to pay him to do it. So it's it's like, I think at this point, it's Mitch Harper is basically the de facto SID for BYU now, right? I, I agree with that. And I think that is just kind of the way that it is, you know, and, and furthermore, uh, if they wanted to do something specifically for media, they have Spencer Linton and Jerem Jordan and Greg Rebell on their very own payroll that they could just release it on their own breaking news special on BYU TV and then post a clip on Twitter of them breaking the news. And give permission to the Deseret News to run it on their website and whatever. Yeah. So I think really, and if you read the article about it, like, yes, BYU did lay off five sports-specific SIDs, um, but they – I think are running to more of a social media focused brand and are leaning more into the coverage that BYU TV provides. And then on social media, creating their own content rather than sending out press releases or scheduling, you know, sending out a press release and then letting the news people create their own content based on that press release. They're saying, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to own it. We're going to be in charge of the brand. I think they said that they're going to have a, um, said that they are going to have a new um, like team of student interns that are working very similar to what the marketing sports marketing program, um, you know, internship program is and have them running all the social and writing press releases and, you know, just controlling everything and kind of making it a professional development experience rather than having to pay, you know, eight, 10 full-time employees. Um, to sketch to write some press releases and schedule news and radio interviews, which are frankly dying forms of media, right? Uh, so just, the, just the whole notion of a press release is is silly, right? Like you used to have to do it, and you type up your press release because you didn't you didn't have any ability, any mediums that you could deliver that news yourself. But now they're everywhere, and if it, it, it seems like this move with the SIDs, like look, it sucks for those people. I feel for those people. It absolutely sucks to lose your job. I've been there. It's miserable. Um, But from an organizational standpoint, this makes all the sense in the world. Those are positions that just aren't needed anymore. And BYU has, frankly, been laying the groundwork for this of this for a very long time. Uh, For example, they are now putting on Periscope and on YouTube their press conferences live. They are dictating who does and does not get to be interviewed, and they're putting those out via BYU Cougars on their own YouTube channel. They have their own channel that has their own sports show, their own sports host, their own sports brand. Like This has been in the works for a very, very long time to the point that the BYU even hired Greg Rebell. Like Now, Greg Rebell is no longer the voice of the Cougars who's employed by IMG or KSL Sports Radio. Like he is the voice of the Cougars who is employed 
by the Cougars. Like they own their the entire distribution network. They own it on their own. Like the idea that press releases matter anymore is just irrelevant. And there are places like uh, even like game notes, right? Like game notes, weekly game notes that have the depth chart, the pronunciation guide and all that stuff. They put those out on their own website now. Right. And you or I could put that together without even having to look and we don't need well, to be employed. I mean, I mean, we, we could, right. We could do that for free, but even if you just wanted it directly from, from, uh, from BYU, you wanted to know exactly what is going to be talked about during the game. Like, all of the little anecdotes that the play-by-play and color announcers bring up throughout the game, they're in the, in the, the game notes. That's where they come from. They get published Mondays at like one o'clock. They get published on the schedule on BYUcougars.com. So it's tough because media, it, like the sports media job is just so different than it used to be. Like it's more about creating original content. And for a long time, Sports media, with the exception of a few columnists that had their own true opinions, right? Like, and they 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 created their own column each week. Uh, the beat writer job can be automated by a few tweets and clicks, and now everybody has the information that a beat writer used to cover. We don't need a beat writer to tell me what Zach Wilson said in practice because I could just publish that video. And I mean, and that's too, it's and it's so it's not even if you just look at journalism as a whole, right? Like it's newspapers are shutting down. They're laying off people like crazy. We saw a lot of people laid off by the Deseret News last week or the week before last. The Trib had the same issue last year. And so it's, you know, there's and part of it is people like you and me, right? Like who we just love the team. We do this for fun on the side, spending a few hours a week covering them. And we provide as much content as what historically because things were so slow to, you know, go be, you had to go in person to get information. You had to record it, then go back and type it up. Then it wasn't digital. So you had to get it typeset and on, you know, a printer and all this stuff. It was like, we can produce more content in a day than a beat, a full-time beat writer could produce, you know, in the eighties or nineties, right? It's just the industry is different. The way people consume information is different and it's unfortunate, um, but that's, just the way things work as the world evolves and technology evolves and certain professions die out, but then new ones pop up that people didn't think of before. And, you know, the people that were let go are very talented. It's really unfortunate and it sucks for their family, but I think, you know, they should be able to land on their feet. You know, it may not be working in college athletics anymore, um, but they're all talented writers and can do things and hopefully um, get the, you know, they should hopefully be able to get back and, on their feet quickly, I hope, especially, you know, with everything that's going on. But this wasn't just a BYU lost money. So they laid off some employees to try to cut things on because of COVID financial losses. It was an overall strategy shift. And I think it, you know, it's not something that got planned overnight. And it's probably been kicked around and thought of for years in advance. Yeah, you know, and I, I get it. That was what the press release said by BYU is that this was because of COVID. And maybe that's true. Like, I'm not going to say that they're they're full of crap, <laughs> but I think even without COVID, this is still happening. COVID may have expedited it. COVID may have, you know, cost an extra job or two, or COVID may have made it more necessary. 
But with or without COVID, I think this same restructure and shuffling things around happens either way. It sucks for those those individuals who have been let go. Some really, really talented people there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, media is changing. And that means that the outlets that, or excuse me, the, the entities that outlets have covered are also going to change. The, the Utah Jazz have done it. They went and hired um, a beat writer, right? Aaron Falk, Aaron Falk was the beat writer for the Salt Lake Tribune, did a really good job, had a big following and a big readership. The Jazz went and hired him. And now he writes Utah Jazz stories for the Utah Jazz. They can control their own message. Uh, it's happening everywhere. It's just the nature of the industry. And it does. It, it creates opportunities for more people like us to come in and do some different things. And it makes it it just makes it all the more important to have original content. And I think that's what like blogs have been forever is a different way to talk about the same stuff. That's really what I take a lot of pride in over at Cougar Sports Insider. Uh, I don't cover the press conferences. Like I very rarely am going to have, I do occasionally, but very rarely do I just have articles that are quotes from the press releases and the press conferences that you can find on YouTube because you can find them on YouTube. You don't need to read what I write. Like you could go and read exactly or hear exactly what, what they said. You don't need me to tell you what they said. So I, I, I really try hard. We try hard as a staff to be creative, to look beyond what is being said and dig into the program itself. And that is what uh, what I think everybody in media is going to have to do. Otherwise, you know, adapt or die. Like that's the harsh reality, the harsh truth of, of what needs to happen. Uh, but this, this topic really started with Jake Wallen, Tim Pew, six, seven. He's a forward. He's kind of a, he's a lanky guy. He's only about 185 pounds right now. And he doesn't look that big. Uh, when you watch him on film, he's got some touch. He can finish around the rim. He's got some ball skills. Like he's a really interesting player. Um, I don't think he's a guy that will come in on day one and start to make a Yoli Childs like impact. He, he just doesn't on tape. He just doesn't show that. Uh, but he he certainly is a talented player. He reminds me a little bit of Wyatt Lowell, and I know we haven't seen Wyatt Lowell at BYU yet. He was ineligible last year uh, because of transfer rules. But I think that Wyatt Lowell, when we do get to see him on the hard on the hardwood, he will look very similar, although taller, but very similar to what BYU is expecting to get out of Jake Wallen when he uh, joins the program following his mission. Another legacy guy, his dad played uh, football in the 80s. His sister played volleyball uh, on that 2014 team, I think it was, that lost to Penn State in the national championship. Uh, so super athletic family, big time BYU family. Really cool to see him continue the legacy. He pounced on the BYU offer like a week after he got it. So uh, really cool, cool day for him. Awesome to to see new people joining the program. Yeah. Um, so that actually, we did put out a mailbag Q and A, and uh, one of the things we got was basketball. So I think there is our update. It sounds like the season uh, maybe starting the tail end of November, possibly even getting a Thanksgiving day game is kind of what we're hearing, but the, nothing has been official, um, officially announced with the non-conference schedule and all of the dates that are set yet. Um, but it's things will get gearing up here and I think the team's going to be good. I mean, it, you know, it's obviously replacing Yoli Childs and, um, and, uh, TJ Haas and, um, Jake, what I, is Jake's last name now? I can't. Tool, Jake Toulson. Toulson. I got yes, you. The, I talked to somebody. 
uh, just this past week who um, has a lot of intimate knowledge of the basketball program. And he was talking about Matt Harms and just said, the guy's for real, like all the hype, he's probably underhyped. Like he looks really, really great in practices. Uh, I have a question for you though, before we move on to the next mailbag question, here's my mailbag question for you. How have tater tots not totally replaced the French fry? Because they're not good. Whoa, you take that back. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, I think you're wrong. Uh, this is this is maybe the first time that I have downgraded my opinion of you just slightly because of one of your opinions. Like I, I, I used to hold you in the highest esteem, like above all others, but now there's others that share that top platform with you because of this. The, I mean, sorry, just they're not that good. There's some few things are better in life than just a great burger and fries. And I would never trade French fries for tater tots. Now, let me ask you this though. Um, How has the onion ring not replaced all of them? This is true. Well, actually, I think this is so a great onion ring always beats French fries, but I think mediocre French fries are better than mediocre onion rings. Um, like if we're talking like Burger King onion rings, like no, like those are, yeah, right? I, I think like I, I think I agree with you, but I think it is a lot harder to produce a mediocre onion ring than it is a mediocre French fry. Like onion rings, I think are inherently they're very all, good. Like yeah, you've got to try to make them suck. Yeah. Um, for my Northern Utah friends. Uh, Warren's slash Dylan's is a restaurant up here. I think the furthest south it goes is Kaysville. Their onion rings are absolute perfection. So in my side, like my fast food sides, it is onion rings, tater tots, and French fries. And even with French fries, I might put potato wedges ahead of French fries, but it's close. It depends on like there's enough variance in a good potato wedge, a bad potato wedge that I won't quite go that far. Fries are easy. They're convenient. They're always fine. But if I'm going to sit down and really enjoy something, yeah, it's it's onion rings, tater tots, and then French fries, and followed closely behind by potato wedges. And that's just the way that it is. I can't believe you don't agree with me. I'm shocked right now that you don't agree. I'm sorry. You know, it's just, it is what it is. Um, I'm eating a cup of tater tots right now. I have been throughout the show. And they're absolutely fantastic. Where are Taco they from? time. Taco time. They have some of the best tater tots in the world. They have just the right amount of salt. I think the they fact fry that you them. get them from t- Taco Time underscores oh, the fact no, no, that no. tater you can tots get, are not widespread greatness. You can get French fries anywhere these days too. Come on, that's that isn't it. Talk, uh, I just I, we need to we need to take the Twitter. In fact, we're gonna do this while we're on the show. We'll see if anybody has like if there's enough votes to really talk about it by the end of the show but uh tater tots i think are better i really think so i think if people sit down and they think about the experience that they have when they're eating their side i think that most people will agree with me that tater tots are better than french fries they're not more convenient they're not easier to eat because you can't just reach into the bag and grab a big you know it's a little bit different but when you have time to sit down 
and eat your French fries or your tater tots, I think that most people will agree that tater tots are the answer. So I'm going to put out a poll on Twitter right now. We're going to leave it open for like three days. How long should we leave it open? We'll go three days. I mean, once it gets off of people's timeline, it'll be done anyway. It doesn't matter whether it's a day or three days. It's not going viral. Well, it might. It should. All right. So I'm putting this poll out there. We can move on. I'm honestly, I'm honestly kind of appalled. Okay. Well, we'll see who agrees with me and who agrees with you. Uh, But we did have one clarification jumping back to our talking point about the New Year's Six and the college football playoff. People, I still keep seeing this around where people saying like, we need Cincinnati to lose so we don't get left out of the New Year's Six. That what Cincinnati has zero bearing on whether BYU goes to the New Year's Six. BYU does not get the, like that G5 spot is for the highest ranked conference champion from the G5. It doesn't matter if they're, number seven Cincinnati and it doesn't matter or if they are number 25 or even if they're all unranked and the CFP has to release a secondary G5 top five outside of the college football playoff top 25 because nobody is in the top 25. It is the highest ranked G5 conference champion that does not include BYU. If BYU is to get in the new year six, it is as an at-large team now. That said, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, we need, and it is helpful for as many of the auto bids to come from the top 12 as possible. Because, so there are six, obviously it's the New Year's six. There are 12 slots available. You know, if the G5 team is ranked in the top 12, then they take one of those spots already. That's fine. Now, if the G5 team is ranked number 18, That means to qualify for an at-large bid, you would need to be ranked number 11 or higher instead of number 12 or higher because the 12 spot now got bumped out to 18. Now, if it's, you know, something weird happens and Clemson is playing, I don't know, NC State in the uh, ACC championship game and somehow they lose or Notre Dame, whoever is playing in the ACC championship game, and somehow they lose to a team that's ranked number 25 and that team gets moved up to 16, then that's still, they would get the automatic bid to go to the Orange Bowl being ranked number 20 or number 15 or whatever. And then Clemson or Notre Dame, they're not going to fall out of the top 10 by losing a three-point game or whatever in a conference championship game. So then now instead of, now there is, instead of the ACC championship or the best top-ranked ACC team getting an automatic bid, you have a team in the teens getting an automatic bid and then a very good Clemson or Notre Dame team taking an at-large thing. So now you need to be ranked number 10 instead of number 12 because you know the G5 came outside of that. And then the you had the ACC had some weird things happen as well. And then also, so it can things can get weird like that if we need it to. So it's the more, there is more wiggle room if all of the auto bids come from within the top 12 because you don't want any bid steals, right? Like similar to in the playoff or in the March Madness um, in the tourney selection Sunday where you have like, you know, Gonzaga gets knocked off in the first round of the NCAA or of the WCC tournament. 
obviously they're not going to get an auto bid, but they are still going to qualify. So that means some other team is going to get left out that was on the fringe, right? So if you are on the fringe, you need more auto bids to come from the top 12. That's where Cincinnati of the G5 team being ranked in that top 12 makes a difference, but there's not a it is impossible for Cincinnati to finish five, BYU to finish six, and BYU gets left out because Cincinnati got the auto bid and we did not. That cannot happen. Yep. Uh, couldn't have said it better myself. So continuing on with the mailbag, I have nothing to add because you illustrated that perfectly. Worry about Cincinnati because I want to be the best non-P5 just to say that I'm the best non-P5. It really has nothing to do with uh, bowl placement or anything like that. Uh, moving along with our mailbag here, uh, we got this question asked a couple of different ways, um, but I think we could cover it in one. Which current seniors and potential draft-worthy juniors do you guys see coming back next year? Which is a great way to phrase this question because seniors can still come back because it's a free year. Um, and I don't know, I mean, defining potential draft worthy people, uh, I think is going to be a little bit of a kind of a crapshoot because there's just so many variables going on with how will the combine look? Is it going to be like the NBA where it's like this virtual combine that everybody kind of does individually? There's just a ton of, ton of variables here. Uh, but looking at BYU's roster, I would be surprised if players like Troy Warner Isaiah Kafusi, Kyrus Tonga, Matt Bushman. I would be surprised if those four came back. I think kind of going through the list off the top of my head, those are probably the only seniors. Uh, Chandon Herring, I would be surprised. Well, Chandon Herring could come back. I, I think he probably goes if he's getting draft love. Um, Tristan I think, Hodge probably goes. I think goes. Chandon Herring is a prime example of someone who maybe is getting fifth, sixth, seventh round draft evaluations coming out of this year, because this is really when he got, he took a big step forward this year and he could, he has the, all the measurables, but another year against a tougher schedule, he could play himself into a second or third round pick. And so he could, he, he, he could be the guy. guy, he could be the guy that comes back to play up, try to play himself into more money. He's just so old. Like BYU players are just so old. And that's, what's so hard. Shannon Herring is a guy who needed the combine. He needed the senior bowl. Uh, so depending on what those look like, that might determine what he does. Tristan Hodge, I would be surprised if he comes back. I think if he's not on NFL radar and going to be drafted this year, I don't think he's going to be drafted. And I think he recognizes that. He's had his degree since last year. So he's already um, in a position that he's ready to move on with life, whether that be with football or whether that be with his career. Uh, and, Troy and Warner, like I said, I think is gone. Matt Bushman's gone. Kyrus Tonga's gone. With Bushman and Hodge, it may be something too where you say, okay, look at Bushman. You have, okay, you got Isaac Rex, Down Hulker, Carter Wheat, Hank Tui Peloto. You're four plus Mason Wake at that H back tight end spot. You're four or five deep. And you say, sorry, Matt Bushman, like, thank you for everything you did. But we got guys right. and we have replaced you with very little drop off in terms and of production. And that's and don't, a big part and don't, of it too. And don't come at me and say that Rex has half the yards that has it's because Bushman was receiving target number one because we did not have any good wide receivers. Right. So and, it and is that's, a, that's a good point that could play a role in all this, that we still don't have an answer from the NCAA of what does this mean? Okay, so you have a whole bunch of seniors that want to come back. 
uh, how is that handled? Is the scholarship limit out the window? There is no more 85 person scholarship limit. Do seniors not count towards that scholarship limit? Is there an NCAA approval process that has to be gone through? Like we still don't know that answer and that could dictate a lot of things. Uh, moving to the juniors, I would be surprised if Brady Christensen comes back. I just don't know what more he can do. Uh, he has the tape against P5s from last year that was exceptional. He is the highest graded offensive tackle in the country, according to Pro Football Focus this year. He's been I think absolutely he's the highest rated offensive player in the country across he might all be. positions. He, he's been absolutely sensational this year. So I would be shocked if he comes back, not because I think he's going to be some you know top 10 pick, but I, I don't know how much higher he can get than he is right now. So why come back? Uh, Zach Wilson, look, I have heard that he is mulling coming back to have one more run. Does beating Utah play a role? Probably, but having one more special run, like you kind of talked about, Garrett, that like that means a lot to him. If that's where he's leading, I might go to his house personally and and sign the paperwork for him so that he goes to the NFL. I'd love to have it back at BYU, but the guy is being talked about as like a top five pick now. So go get that money and then like just go get the money. That will help BYU's program as much as anything. It really will. But if he does decide to come back for whatever reason, I think that could play into a guy like Brady Christensen's it could decision if he's iffy and thinking, you know, and similar. And I think, I mean, it's still criminal to me that he did not get added to the Outland watch list until last week because he yeah, should a, be a finalist based on how he's playing. But right. if the, I mean, I hope that like, those guys, like, he still wasn't bad last year either. Like Brady Christian said, it's not like he took, he obviously improved, but it's not like he took a huge jump. He still finished with like an 88 overall and was the highest ranked. PFF had him as the highest best rated BYU offensive player last season as well. Like he has been good for two years now and very underappreciated. And so if, I mean, but like I kind of mentioned earlier in the show, if he's saying, you know, we run this table again a second time and they very well could happen because I have faith in Zach Wilson. I want to be here to be part of something like truly magical. And right now I'm getting a third round grade, but I think I can be a first rounder you know, I could see him coming back because he's saying, you know, the injury risk as, as a tackle is a lot lower than at other positions. The, you know, you're not getting banged up as much as you are on the inside as a guard or a center. You, the age is not as much of a factor as it is for a skill player, even though he's a little older, having been on a mission. Um, so it's, there's a lot of reasons to think that Brady Christensen may be closer to 50-50 than it is. Oh, he's set in stone. He's gone. Um, I think he's set in stone and gone. I, I, I think, I, mean, it, I, I think he most likely leaves this year, but if for some reason Zach Wilson comes back, I bet you Christensen comes back with him. Okay. That's fair. That is fair. Uh, moving on scale of one to 10. How confident are you that a 10 and O BYU gets a new year's six invite a uh, 10, 10. I am. I'm very much a 10 and I actually prefer a one to seven scale. Most of the time, uh, and I think that there's science, and maybe I'm making this up, but I sort of feel like this is real, that a one to seven scale, it forces you to think about it a little bit more. So the accuracy that you're going to get is going to be a little bit better. Like people are like, whoa, I don't have as many numbers to choose from. But a one to 10 scale, like if it's somebody who really doesn't know, 
they're always going to say six or seven, like every single time. So if you just eliminate that option and you say one to seven, suddenly people are having to think about their answer. Uh, I learned this in an emergency room visit once with my, when I was a kid, maybe it was me, maybe, I, I don't even remember who it was for, but the doctor came in and asked me, one to seven, what is your pain? And my answer was a six. And he's like, whoa, six out of seven? And I was, well, wait a minute. No, six out of 10. I'm like a four out of seven. And he's like, okay, so well, that's not that bad. I was like, yeah, I'm like, whoa. So one to seven. And so on a scale of one to seven, how confident am I? Still a seven. I'm very, very confident. 10 and OBYU gets into your six invite. I think it uh, definitely happens as well. I think it has to. Next question. And this, this really grinds my gears because of how much this was talked about uh, in the press conference this week. What role does prayer play in preparing for the podcast? And I don't want to say it's no role. I mean, I think there's a role for prayer. We're always praying in our hearts, but we don't have a partnership prayer. No, there, there, is, no compa- there is no companionship inventory. Nope, there's not. We don't pray for our agenda, but I do feel like we prepare our agenda in a very similar way to how I prepared lessons on my mission, meaning that it's like, oh, we're walking from house to house. What are we going to talk about? And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, that's how all of us prepared lessons on our missions, at least all of us who had people to teach. I don't know what it was like in Russia. When you only had like one lesson a week, maybe you did prepare it. Did well, one, I was in Ukraine, but two, <laughs> I did have a transfer where we only taught two lessons the entire transfer. Yeah. So I would imagine that those lessons were a little bit more prepared than mine were of what are we talking about again? I don't even know. This is the 44th lesson that we've taught today. So maybe it's maybe it's different. Uh, but if you guys don't understand that joke, so BYU, Boise State, they they had their prayer after the after the game last week, which is great. That prayer was like the subject of the press conference with Kalani Satake this week. There were like half the questions were about the prayer, which I am not mad about the questions about the prayer. I understand BYU is a religious institution. Prayer plays a role. Uh, A a religion reporter was on the press conference. I, I get it. I wholeheartedly understand why prayer was talked about so much. What I don't understand is if you're BYU why are you allowing the religion discussion to take place during the football press conference? Because all of those sports writers who have to write about sports lost an opportunity for half of their content for the week because they were inundated with prayer questions. So why are you not creating a second press conference where the religion questions can be asked and they can be asked in a very open way, whatever they want to do, but the football press conference is for the football journalists who have to cover the football aspect of the football team. You know, it's, I think it's because there is no longer a sports information director to organize that. That's... <laughs> well, there was at the time, but you're right. Uh, we've talked about this one, this one on the show a few times, but uh, if you could give us just our, your quick answer, because I don't think we know rough estimate of how much money BYU could get for making a new year six bowl. So, I don't know. So the, there's a lot of different numbers. So the at-large teams, so the, it's a little different. So back in the day with the BCS, it was like, if you made it to a bowl, you got this much money. But with the 
restructuring of like the college football playoff and things. So there is like each conference gets a set amount based on, so like the big 10 gets a set amount based on being contracted with the Rose bowl and same to the PAC 12. And that's like with the big money, right? Like it's like the PAC 12 or the Rose bowl group, whatever they're called is giving each of those conferences like $25 million a year or something like that to divvy up amongst it. And then it's like each of the five power five conferences get a set amount of money to divvy up. And then all the G five as a whole, each of those conferences get some money to split up. And then BYU gets a small pile of money that they have to share with the other FBS independent, non Notre Dame FBS independence, which is stupid. Um, and <laughs> so there's, and then there are payouts for, in addition to that, based on, like the team itself and so and then whether so it's if you go to an at-large um game if you're an at-large bid or one of the non-semi games you get four million dollars to your team and your conference may have rules of how that gets split up whether you get to keep it or not and then if you are um, in the playoff games you get an extra six million dollars so a lot of it isn't so much of you know where it's like, oh, Ohio State or Alabama went, and so they get like $25 million extra dollars for the SEC. It's already baked in as like, okay, the SEC is going to one of these games, so we are giving the SEC gets this much money every single year regardless of what happens. And then there's team-by-team team small bonuses built on top of it. So the I haven't figured out or seen what the actual number is, um, but it will be at least $4 million because it would be an at-large thing, whether there's another side of that or – Plus it's, they do cover travel expenses and, and like lodging and things like that. So um, it would help stay, you know, things stay afloat with COVID going on, which was the other half of that question. But it, you know, I mean, there's still, that doesn't, it's not really scratching um, the surface of the financial loss that the athletic department is facing this year. So if you are able to, and you want to support and you want to minimize that, go donate some money to join the Cougar club, donate some money to the AD because it is a much, much, much greater loss than $4 million. And if you don't feel like the money that you're going to donate to the AD or the Cougar club is, will make enough of a dent, then maybe consider writing a letter to your local Ryan Smith and see if he will donate even more money than he already has. Cause he certainly has enough to bail BYU out. Uh, next question, real quick, I'll take this one, but BYU's gone after grad transfer running backs the last couple of years. What position might the coaches look to to boost with a grad transfer coming up for next year? Uh, the answer is none. Like the answer, there, there is not a glaring need that BYU is going to look at and say, hey, I, we've got to find a grad transfer. Now, that is not to say that they will not explore the grad transfer market, but I think they will have the benefit of going and looking at grad transfers this year and finding just good players who will elevate their team rather than we've got to find a running back or we're not going to be able to run the ball. So that's my gut is that BYU entertains just whoever's there that is interested in BYU and they look and see if they can do it. Uh, but there's not a specific position of need that they have to go out and target. We had a lot of questions, Nate Slack, bringing it like with all the questions for us today, uh, two part question. How superstitious are you? I know he wants an office reference there. Everybody does, and I'm not going to give it to you. I am very superstitious. Number two, what have you done personally to contribute to BYU's 8-0 start? My wife has not watched any part of a second half yet this year because I kick her out. And we've done this for years. I always kick her out at halftime. 
and she, well, she prefers it at this point, but at halftime, she either goes to bed or goes to a different room or whatever. And then she enjoys to follow along in the second half on Twitter and just get the updates there without having to see it live. And I'm convinced that when she watches it live, she's bad luck. And she's now bought into that as well. And so she gets too stressed out because she's the reason that things aren't going well in the second half. So she'll just follow along on Twitter. That's what we've done. Jessica has not watched a second half. You're welcome, everybody. I mean, I think you have to keep doing it. I think I'm not saying I'm superstitious, but I now have two kids. The first game, uh, well, the only game of the 2018 season that my daughter was alive for was the bowl game in which Zach Wilson obviously went 18 for 18 on a potato bowl. Then my son was born in July of this year, and we know that BYU is undefeated. So it seems like BYU is undefeated in calendar years, like for the remainder of the calendar year in which I have a child born. So if we get a New Year's Six game played on December 31st, it's happening, folks. And Zach Wilson is going to keep playing out of his mind. Uh, Yeah, I totally agree. And it's because of our superstition. And like ESPN has taught us, it's only weird if it doesn't work. Um, Moving on to our picks. We, you know what? This is what makes Give Them Hell Brigham great. We had a couple, we had one more other question. Oh, was did I miss one? There was one. So just um, knowing. I got lost in the conversation about uh, tater tots. Yes, that got a lot more replies than I expected. Um, It said, (laughs) do we have any updates on Siaki Ika or how many additional commits do we foresee knowing that this class is small? Ooh, that's up my alley, I feel like. Uh, This class is small. (laughs) <laughs> this class is small. Uh, I'll start with Siaki Ika. He's actually been in town uh, here locally in Utah, back home with his family. Uh, I talked to a few people who I think would know better than anybody else. And he really hasn't started sorting through his options or playing the game yet. Siaki is just kind of taking his time, uh, figuring out what he wants to do, what he, you know, what's important to him in terms of where he goes in his next school is just kind of getting ready to go through the process. And so in terms of who's the leader and things like that, there hasn't been anything that I, I, that I know of that would tangibly, you know, make me be able to tangibly say, Hey, school a over school B. Uh, Having said that, I do think he will end up coming back home and he will pick either BYU or Utah. Uh, I think both schools feel really good about what they have to offer. Obviously Utah has had a ton of success getting defensive linemen to the next level uh including last year with uh with uh god what's his name lecky Fotu, john penasini they both were drafted as defensive tackles last year like they, they have a, clearly they have a ton to offer byu feels good they could look at kairos tonga say hey look this is what you would do you would become kairos tonga i think siaki is better than kairos tonga and i love kairos and i think that siaki has that that ability to become better uh, so I think both schools like their pitch, but I have not heard necessarily that one is over the other at this point. I know that Utah is very, very confident. Utah's always very, very confident. Every time there's a recruit, they're always confident, and they should be. They, they, you know, they they have a lot to offer, especially a local defensive lineman. But from what I've heard, he's not set one way or the other right now at this point. So that's my answer. And then as far as the recruiting class, it is going to be small. I think that the numbers will be dictated on who wants to commit. Uh, I could see, you know, if there are only two players out of like the remaining six or seven that are on the board, if Dallin Havea and John Henry Daly are the only ones who 
end up wanting in, then I think BYU will settle for a 12-person class and feel good and take that scholarship capital and apply it somewhere else down the road. But if guys like Jackson Dart and Logan Fano and you know some of those types of players want to come into the program, then they will find a way to add those players in. So anywhere from like 12 to 16, I think is the answer. If we got above 16, I would be very surprised. I think that wraps that one up. And so we can now get on to our picks. Last week I was five and one. I got to stop betting with my heart. You do. It's you need to stop doing that. Um, like even though I we did said make... last week, I know that Houston's not going to beat Cincinnati, but I picked them anyways because I wanted to will it to happen. I mean, I think it was reasonable so that they could cover 13 and a half points. That wasn't crazy. I mean, they they, <laughs> they did got, not. They did not. I mean, there were and we did have two cancellations. So there were a couple pushes with Arizona, Utah and Louisville, Virginia. Um, I lost out on Clemson. And you missed on Oklahoma State over K State and Houston. Another one with my heart. Yes. So that brings our total. So you are sitting at 17 and 12, and I'm at 19 and 10 on the season. 17 um, so and 12 is respectable. 19 and 10 is damn good. Well you know, done. I'm probably going to regress to the mean here quickly this week. So <laughs> our first pick, our first game is Colorado State is a 14 point dog on the blue in Boise. Boise, taking Boise. Hank Bachmeyer is going to play, and that team is going to be really looking to uh, show the world that they're not as bad as BYU made them look. It is bizarre. So if you are a 24-7 sports VIP subscriber, you get access to every team's message board, and the Boise State board after that game was insane. Like they, There are a shocking number of fans that want to see Brian Harson fired, which is ludicrous to me, given – all of his performance, like they're upset that they went 12 and one last year, right? Like it's, you know, and they, that they got left out and it's like, well, sorry, that's what happens when you're in the mountain West and it's not that great of a conference. You either run the table or you don't get to go to the new year six. Right. I mean, I know they did get in the very first year in 2014, but you were still riding the high of Chris Peterson and the AAC was, had not, um, you know, solidified itself as the clear number one G5 league. And now they're at the look. The AAC is looking at getting the NY6 bid five out of the first seven years of the college football playoff. So it's I think it's very clear that they are number one. And the fact that they got a a you know that they had two teams ranked higher than Boise State, each that had losses um, into the into the uh, you know their two teams. Whoever won the AAC championship game last year would have gotten the NY6 bid. I think it. And the fact that in the Massey composite rating, the the American last year actually finished higher in most computer models than the ACC did shows like how good of a league it has risen to, which is not something that anyone would have predicted in 2012 when it, you know, came came out and they were inviting Tulane to try to solidify things. Um, but yeah, I think Boise bounces back. Um, they probably had a great week of practice this week. They obviously will have Bachmeyer back. Um, you know, I shout out to Cade Finnegan. He got thrown into action and he actually did not play poorly. I mean, he, given everything that was going on around him, he did well and it's not his fault. Their defense laid an absolute egg. And so it's, you know, I think he actually has a bright future ahead of him for the Broncos and can be a good quarterback. Um, East Carolina is a 27 and a half point favorite on the road at Cincinnati. Dog, not a fit. You said East Carolina is a favorite. Oh, sorry. 
Uh, East Carolina be, is a 27 and a half point dog on the road at Cincinnati. If they were a 27 and a half point favorite on the road at Cincinnati, I would go and get a second mortgage today and I would put all of it on Cincinnati. The so the line actually opened at 25 and has moved in the Bearcats' favor. Most computer model, average computer model has it as a 31 point. Since it, it's hard to bet against Cincinnati, they've looked absolutely great. Uh, I think I hate their quarterback, Desmond Ritter. Like watching him play a little bit in the last few weeks, I think I don't like him. I think he's great. I think he's a heck of a player, but there's just something about him that I don't like. And I have committed this week. I think last week I would have taken East Carolina because I would have said, Garrett, I don't like the quarterback. I'm going to bet with my heart. I just can't bet against Cincinnati. So I'm going to take Cincinnati. But I do think I hate Desmond Ritter a little bit, which is uh, I don't think he's done anything. He's never said anything. He spells his name weird, which I don't love. But uh, I think that I might hate him. You know, I'm debating on this just because it's a 27 and a half point. And I know ECU is not a good team, but I feel like this could be where ECU gets a backdoor cover just because they like have to sit, they sit Ritter in the fourth quarter and then end up winning by 27. With you know, even, even Cincinnati's going to have their UTSA game at one point. You know what this I mean? True. So I, I toyed with East Carolina, but I'm going to try to not bet with my heart this week. So I'm taking Cincinnati. You know, I. Who does Cincinnati have next week? Let me look at their schedule. Oh man, we're getting serious. I'm. This is this is where you regress to the mean when you start to overthink it. Cincinnati is playing UCF next week. Ooh, this is trap game. Trap game. I'm. I think Cincinnati wins, but it is closer than it should be because they are looking ahead to UCF. Remember, remember this moment, folks. This is where Garrett got into his own head. It is. I got into my own head. I I mean, it's still the line I think is pretty close to, I don't think the line is wild. And I would not, if it was like 24 points, I would definitely take Cincinnati, but 27 and a half is a lot. All right. I'm on board. <clears throat> Miami is a two and a half point dog on the road at Virginia Tech. I am taking the Miami Hurricanes. I don't see... Virginia Tech containing Derek King. I have no idea why Miami's an underdog. So yeah, give me Miami. Um, the undefeated Indiana Hoosiers are a minus. They are a seven-point road favorite at Michigan State. Michigan State is not good, but I think they can be good. They beat Michigan, who is also not good, but I think that Mel Tucker is going to have these ups and downs as he implements his new system. I'm thinking this week is an up. They're going to be up. They're going to look at this as a huge opportunity to say, hey, we beat a top 10 team. And frankly, I just don't buy Indiana. So Michigan State for me and the points. I am going to take, so you're taking the home dog, which is usually a good idea. I've I just haven't seen it from Michigan State. I don't think – I never really saw it from Mel Tucker at Colorado. I think that was a bizarre hire by Michigan State. Well, they really didn't have a choice. Um, but I've taken the Hoosiers, you know, some – I just don't see it. Um, so I think we're going to see some separation this week because we – This are, is it. I'm either coming of, back or you're pulling away forever. Uh, Wisconsin is a four-and-a-half-point favorite at Michigan. I feel like we should set a prop up on whether this game is actually played or not. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, um, 
I'm going to go with Michigan here because if they don't win this game, I think that Harbaugh gets fired before the end of the day. And so they're going to be coaching for their job. And Wisconsin, who even knows what they've been doing over the last few weeks with all their COVID mess. And, you know, first quarterbacks, first game, you know, Graham Nertz, he played great. But now there's at least one game's worth of tape on him that allows teams to adjust. Give me Michigan in the points. You know, I agree with you. Um, I think either way, this is Harbaugh's last year in yeah. Ann Arbor, but I, it could be, this could be his last game. Um, so our last pick, Fresno State is a 10-point road favorite in Logan against the Frank Miley led Utah State Aggies. Look, I don't like Utah State, but I like them a lot more in a post-Gary Anderson world. And my heart wants Utah State to win this game by 45. I, I really want it. Um, I don't know if I see it, but I don't think Fresno is very good either. And 10 is a lot on the road, and it's going to be crappy weather. So I'm going to take Utah State in a close game just because they're the home dog, and I like that. But I, I don't feel good about this game. Um, this line has actually moved a ton. Fresno actually opened as a 15 point favorite and then it moved. Yeah, to which 10. is crazy. Um, you know, I, you know, I think I'm going to have to take the Bulldogs. This is also me going with my heart a little bit, but it's, I mean, Utah state has not, they have yet in three games, they have not had a quarterback throw for more than 100 yards. That's true. Offense, They've sucked so bad. The, you know, keeping within 10 points of Fresno would require them to either hold Fresno would require them to hold Fresno to less than 10 points. And I don't don't think that's going to happen. So it's, I mean, their offense has struggled and I don't think that's going to change because obviously Gary Anderson was involved with the defense. Um, You know, their defense has also struggled and now Gary Anderson was probably the best defensive coach on that staff, even though, I mean, Frank Miley was the defensive coordinator slash assistant head coach who's now taking over as the interim but even like justin enna was the defensive coordinator and was demoted after the poor performance last year so i just don't see you know the same way you're saying you can't bet against cincinnati until they prove otherwise i cannot bet on utah state until they prove otherwise fade fade the aggies forever i get it i think that's reasonable um we this is what makes this show great in a bye week where there's conceivably nothing to talk about, we have filled up, I think, what is going to be our longest show. Yeah, it's, I don't even know what time we started. Um, our show uh, last it week was, was, it was a long time ago. It I was mean, a it's, a, it's a quarter after two. Well, this is an afternoon show because Veterans Day is the only day of the year where being, well, it's the other, it's one of two days in the year that being a banker is the greatest the other is columbus day because those are big time holidays for us bankers we get to shut down shop and be done for the day while most everybody else including my kids go about their regular life my kid had school today but i get to celebrate the federal holiday so we recorded here mid-afternoon and yeah it's uh it's now a quarter after two we've been at this for a good long minute you know, and we are happy. We're going to get this out to you. So if you do have to work today, it will be ready for your afternoon drive home. And 
We do have a couple new shirts that are available on our website, givemhellbrigham.com. Um, one of them, don't know how long it will be there. It may be a limited edition. So check out that one. Uh, if you go to the homepage, you will see it and you will know what we are referring to. Um, it's probably actually going to only stay up till the end of the week, I imagine, um, before some people get mad at us. So the order that if you would, are so inclined and want some new gear for your wardrobe, um, we're going to get back on the shirt train, start uh, adding some more on there. We kind of tweaked the design a little bit, found a new font that we liked. They're going to look a little cleaner, a little more football-esque, you know, with a, and um, you know, we're going to do some more things. We also got some more things in the pipeline of, um, you know, we do have the pinnacle plays posters and we're going to start adding shirts to that as well. If you, you know, have a favorite play from BYU lore that you would like on a shirt or a poster, reach out to us, let us know what it is and we can get that set up for you, um, make it available for you to order. Um, but Jeff, what other parting words of wisdom do you have for us? Oh, how's our, uh, to, how's our, your poll yeah game. quick quick update on the poll um i am not winning but it's about it's about split into thirds about two-thirds of people more votes than i think you expected 146 votes so far uh 67 of people say fries are better and frankly 67 of people are wrong it is yeah, I'm reading the latest reply. It says fries are consistently better, but a good top blows any fry out of the water. And that's maybe the most accurate statement that I've ever heard. Uh, as far as final bits of wisdom, we do have a kid-friendly shirt that I ordered for my kids that is up on the show It is or up on the store. It's the Give Them Heck Brigham shirt, you know, obviously, because they're children. And if they want to support the show, you can do that and not have to explain to them why we could say, give them hell, Brigham, but you can't say what the hell is wrong with you, dad. So there you go. Um, the other shirt that we did also mention previously, um, there is a youth version of that available as well. Of, oh, good. I didn't know that. I, I did have someone reach out and was like, Hey, I want my, I want one of these for my kids. Cause I think it'll be funny. And so I, I made, I made a youth size sizes available as well. Um, okay. So you can, you can go. I so might I, need that myself. I do like the train them young uh, shirt with the give them heck Brigham. That is quite funny. Might have to order one of that or even uh, have to maybe order, look up some infant sizes to get a copy of that as well. You they know, exist. They, so we could do that. Yes. Yeah, so we can get, get the two T if you want anything from a two T up to an adult five X, we can cover your witty t-shirt needs. Bam. Garrett, this has been a good show, man. It's been a good show. I'm going to get this edited and put up for everyone to listen to on their drive home. And it's a bye week this week. So enjoy some of the other great games that are available or just take, you know, take some time off. There's zero stress to be had about BYU football. I think our, our bodies and souls are ready for the rest after the stress that we had going into last Friday night, but let's give them hell. Give them hell.